Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 190. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooliman. Hi, everybody. How are you doing, Fooliman? I am recovering. I was ill. Uh, if they offer you a vaccine for anything, COVID, flu, some other shit, take it. Because I got some non-COVID illness last week, and it knocked me on my ass. I will have you know. <laughs> so... Yeah, just there's a lot of that floating around. You can probably still hear it a little bit in my voice, but I am uh, coming back and ready to play through injury to deliver you the podcast that you have come to expect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I've, I've heard from a variety of like medical officials that this is expected to be a worse flu season mm. than before. Um, I don't know if I, I, I haven't read, I've read the headlines, I haven't read the articles. I don't know if this has to do with like the, the pandemic in particular or if it's just like some flu seasons are better or worse than others but yeah as always we encourage you get your flu shot if if, if you're able to and um yeah it's <laughs> stay, stay safe this winter yeah absolutely winter is terrible enough as it is without having to deal with the flu yeah god and we're staring or, down or any other illnesses a whole lot of months where our only consolation will be the toronto maple leafs oh god <laughs> <laughs> that's not great yeah we're, we're already at the point where like you look out of your office window at 4 30 it's like pitch black i think they gotta stop doing that i know that the, there's some sort of use to like oh well we'll get more daylight hours in the morning i'm like man i don't give a shit that's not i would rather wake up in the darkness and not feel like the day and the world have ended in the late afternoon to be honest mm-hmm. now to some extent look you only have so many hours of daylight there's no way to win but yeah, the real, the real answer is moved to, like, the equator. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, we we missed last week. We want to talk about some random Leaf stuff this week. I, I guess it's kind of convenient. We keep missing weeks where the Leafs have, like, sucked, and then um, coming back in weeks where, like, things are better, which makes for a more fun podcast, I suppose. Yes, the Leafs did us a solid and beat up on the Buffalo Sabres last night. They should do that. They're a better team than the Buffalo Sabres. And ought to be. But still, playing down to their competition has, as listeners know, been a real problem for the Toronto Maple Leafs hockey club for a long time. And so just seeing them take care of business in a 5-2 fashion is kind of a nice relief. Yeah, I mean, we don't have to talk too much about the game in particular, but overall it was relatively comfortable. The Leafs kind of won this on special teams. They got two power play goals and a shorthanded goal. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, that was the difference in a, in a 5-2 game. And at, at 5v5, you know, it was relatively it was relatively even. Um, which, again, I mean, is a little disconcerting. And, and maybe in a week or two, we'll, you know, when we get to around 25 games or so, we'll chat about the Leafs, like, overall numbers to start the year, mm. um, which are very mid. Mm-hmm. They, they are, like, the middest of mid. Um and, you know, how much that concerns us. But for now, we're going to talk about a couple of things, including um, Matt Murray, Rasmus Sandin, a quick look around the Atlantic Division, and the Leafs ceiling uh, this season. And whether, you know, that has been revised uh, upwards or downwards based on what we've seen. So let's let's start with the, the fun stuff. And I never thought I'd say that. Uh, let's start with Matt Murray. Yeah, you know what? Uh, I was somewhat skeptical about Matt Murray. Uh, I still am. I don't withdraw anything that I said about that trade. However, the four games he's played hasn't completely 
change you <laughs> change your your priors yeah let's not be total slaves to recency on this one and i have to say a big part of my concern about him was his health and mm-hmm. he's only played four games by this point in the season for a reason however focus on the positive here he had a good week he was good um in three straight games and he gave the team a chance to win in all of them the team did win two of them and took an OTL point in the other one. Um, and really were, you know, not a lot to complain about. Um, wasn't perfect, for sure, but definitely don't want to let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Um, you know, he is big, he is rangy, he's capable of getting on pucks. Um, when he's fighting through it, it's very encouraging to see, frankly. We said all Matt Murray really had to do was give this team good enough goaltending, or at least they had to get some that out of some combo of him and Ilya Samsonov. Well, they've been getting that, and so as long as they do, they're going to be competitive. Yeah, so Murray, I mean, on the season, this is, a, as we said, a tiny sample size, because mm-hmm. um, he, he's only faced like 172 block shots, or unblocked shots, rather, per hockey biz, but he's faced um, 13... Point two expected goals and he's let in 11 actual goals in all situations so like that's no guarantee of what's going to happen going forward but it's certainly better than the alternative mm-hmm. and you know we said earlier in our preview prods about the Leafs like if you could guarantee them league average goaltending we'd be like really really confident in this team now as it's turned out they've gotten better than league average goaltending through um Primarily Sansonov and now a few games of Murray. And other parts of the team have underperformed in ways that we didn't expect that have made probably that statement not not quite as true. Because I, I, we have gotten league average goaltending and yeah. the results haven't been amazing, right? Just mm-hmm. in terms of what, what the Leafs are. They're, they're like 10th or 11th in the league, which is fine, but again, not amazing. Um, but the goaltending has really held up their side of the bargain thus far. And you can't really ask for anything more. Mm-hmm. Now, the, of course, the scary part is this: the wagon, the wheels could a- absolutely fall off the wagon going forward, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't think anything that happens within the season will actually really give us a ton more confidence about Murray and Samsonov, just because the sample size is always going to be too small. Mm-hmm. Like, what matters but, is who's ready yeah. to roll when playoff time rolls around. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, it, it, it's 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 very good to to see. Um, you know, we're, we're, the risk of the Leafs absolutely blowing this season due to goaltending is getting lower and lower, which is nice. Yeah. Uh, but it still exists, and <laughs> that's not going to change until, you know, much later in the season. I like how we tried to be optimistic about the goaltending, and within one minute we were like, we're still scared. <laughs> the fear will not go away. I mean, it, it is... I, I think, like, Dubas does deserve some some credit for this in the sense that, mm-hmm. like, yeah, maybe he's getting lucky and these guys are, are running hot. But, you know, if, if they were doing really badly, we'd absolutely be criticizing him. Yeah, we would. We would. Um, and, and, you know, as sketchy as it's seemed at times with, like, Eric Schalgren playing more of a role than I think anyone would have wanted ahead of time, mm-hmm. the Leafs have scratched together reasonable goaltending. Yeah. Right? Like, on the, enti- on the entire season, the Leafs have... The Leafs goalies have faced 55 expected goals and given up 49 which that's better than i thought it would be yeah absolutely and i do want to say okay 
Because people conflate criticism of uh, the Matt Murray trade sometimes with a desire to have kept Jack Campbell at that contract that he signed with the Edmonton Oilers. I want to emphasize for the billionth time, that was not my objection. And I got that on tape. Uh, I did not want to extend Jack Campbell. But that said, Jack Campbell has done nothing to make you wish you had signed him to that contract. And to be clear, like, there's a long way to run. It's been a tough six weeks. He'll come out of it. I don't wish him any ill. You know, he seems like a nice enough guy. But he's been dreadful for the Edmonton Oilers. Um, and so you can certainly give Dubas credit for not having taken the bait on that one so far in the very early going. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's definitely true. <clears throat> so, we wanted to talk about Rasmus Sandin, who is uh, perceived, including by us, as having had a bit of a rough start to the season. Now, statistically, he doesn't look that bad. Um, Sandin is a puck mover. You know, he's counted on to make passes from the defense, and it hasn't gone as well as we might have hoped in terms of him making one or two passes a game that seem like he's giving a gift basket to the opposing team. That's never what you want. And the truth is, when you're a playmaking defenseman, if you're a little bit off, your mistakes wind up on the sticks of the other team, and it looks awful, and sometimes it leads to grade-A chances against and goals that go in past your goalie. Um... You know, it can be more obvious than a defenseman who tries to do less and does less, but doesn't screw up quite so obviously. Um, we've talked in the past how we think that Sandin is a very good passing defenseman. I still think that. But something does seem to be a little bit off with him, to my eye. Yeah, I, I think... I mean, again, he, he's being placed in relatively easy usage as as far as as far as i can tell certainly like by my eye it doesn't seem like he totally has the trust of shelton keith yet which is understandable Mm -hmm. uh and at the same time in those minutes i don't think he's really stood out as particularly particularly amazing Mm -hmm. right now it is better than the team average and it is you know positive in 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 XG and all that sort of stuff. Uh, But not to the same degree that it was last year, I don't believe. And his play driving stats, like his RAPM, is pretty middling this season, right? It's a small sample as of this point. But that's not exactly what you want to see for a young player who, who we hope continues to progress and can actually become a legit top four candidate like like right now if i just replaced the name rasmus sandin and everything i said with travis Dermott and we went back like a year and a half or two years mm. i don't think anyone would, would have been able to notice yeah to a large extent right. and that's that's not ideal you know um excuse me uh sandin missed training camp or part of training camp as part of his contract dispute again i don't hold that against him in a personal way He's allowed to negotiate in his own interest, but I do wonder if that played a role. But a big reason that he was reluctant to sign the contract that he eventually took was the perception that he was going to be squeezed out. 
he seemed to feel like he might not get enough playing time. He didn't feel he had in the past. Um, now Jake Muzzin is gone, possibly permanently. Uh, TJ Brody is out. Uh, there are openings on this defense group that Sandine should be taking advantage of. You know, no one's talking about scratching him right now. And yet at the same time, if I list in order who are the defensemen that Sheldon Keith trusts, I think I get through five names before I say Rasmus Sandin. And one of the five is Jordy Ben. And it's like, yeah, the expectation is that you clear that bar at this point in time if you're going to be more than Nito third pair defenseman. And, yeah. and the yeah. other thing is, as you alluded to, when Sandin makes big mistakes, they do tend to be relatively cataclysmic. Mm. And there's, I guess, a psychological aspect to this from a coaching perspective, which is that like coaches will always favor the lower variance player, mm. even if like the, the net of the higher variance player is higher. And the other thing is, you know, I, I do actually believe that that some that like traditional um, public XG models and whatnot do underrate the very, very best chances um, in a hockey game, which occur often due to someone blowing a tire or like a terrible giveaway or, or, or things like that. Mm-hmm. Right. So like with Sandin, I do actually, you can even sort of like mentally, you ha- you sort of have to mentally apply a tax even to, to his overall numbers, which again, they, they are, they are good. Mm-hmm. Right. Like the, the Leafs have uh, expected goals for of like 3.2, 3.3. Uh, per 60 with him on the ice and expected goals against of 2.85 or something right like that's that's good that's better than the team average but the reason we use things like rpm and whatnot is because it attempts to isolate for the situation in which a player is playing yeah. right sandine's getting pretty pillow soft minutes at this point um with usually kind of an overqualified partner in in giordano and and occasionally uh timothy Logan. yeah I think, look, Sandin is good at those cycle-heavy shifts that the Leafs specialize in where they keep the puck moving in the offensive zone, waiting for a crack to open in the defensive structure. And you can debate how fertile a strategy that is in certain situations, but that's what the Leafs do, and he can contribute to it. But at the same time, I think we were hoping to see more of a step forward from him sometime in the near future and we haven't seen it yet yeah i guess that's probably the best way to phrase it where the disappointment hasn't been that he's been like actively terrible or something it's that Mm -hmm. it's the absence of a positive step forward right um and you know at some point you start to revise your opinion of what he's going to be downward now he's still young there's still time for lots of improvement we're six weeks into the season there's still time for him to get a lot better this year and to make this whole segment look silly in a hurry. But he's getting the opportunity that he seemed to be waiting for. And right now he's struggling with it a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, we're hoping to see some adjustment, some improvement, and maybe just a bit more sang Freud as he gets through more of these situations and recognizes when to hold the puck when to safely dish it away, and when to try and do something a little bit more ambitious. And that's tough. You have to read plays in a hurry. But that's basically what it means to be an NHL puck mover. 
yeah pretty much it, it's it's been a little uh unfortunate um because i think everyone really 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 wants sandine to do well mm-hmm. um and for a while he was projecting it seems as as someone who could be a genuine difference maker in the in the leafs top four mm-hmm. and he, simply he hasn't earned keith's trust to do that and I don't exactly blame Keith at this point either for for not trusting him in that way, right? Now, I mean, there there are there are still challenges that he faces in terms of the the amount of Leafs defensemen who are up, just above him on the on the depth chart. But as you said, you know that that's less of an issue now with Brody and Muzzin, two of those guys who, in principle, could block him uh, being out. Right, like now the Leafs' left pairing, left sided defensemen are Riley, uh, Sandine, and like Giordano. And that's it. Yeah, and I mean, I I hate to sound like a hard ass here, but at some point you gotta beat somebody. Like that's <laughs> that's the nature of this, and we've talked about this before. To make the team, you have to outperform other people who are on the team, mm-hmm. or who are likely to make the team. You know, Timothy Lilligren, we talked about that. Eventually, that's what he did. And that's why he's here. And I'm not saying, you know, he's going to be a, a superstar defenseman of the future. But he earned his spot, his spot partly because he was better than the people he was competing against. Sandine has to start doing that to move up. Otherwise, he's going to be a nice sixth defenseman. Mm-hmm. And, and part of this is, is unfair in that, like, often he'll have to beat someone when he's playing on his offside and they're not right but like that's i like unfortunately that's 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 life right that's that's life in the nhl yeah there are more left shooting defensemen than than there are right shooting defensemen it's i don't know if it's two to one or if it's a little bit less than that but certainly it skews left and that's just reality yeah so it's like on, on the whole Again, it's not like the Leafs are like absolutely sewering um, their their team when when Sandine is on the ice. He's he's been fine, and he, I could agree that he's gotten like a little bit unlucky, right? Like we we are probably um, being harsher on him than if he had just a PDO bender, mm-hmm. because you know we we remember him fishing the puck out of his own net, and we don't remember many goals with him being on the ice, and that's because you know that both of those have happened a lot right mm-hmm. um or, or in particular he hasn't driven goals for in any any meaningful way and and that could just be you know that could just be forward shooting luck when he's on the ice and also a bit of who he's plays with because i think he does play a fair bit with like um that the camp line which is obviously not incredibly gifted with uh mm-hmm. with shooting talent yeah but at the same time you know Part of part of the Leafs' success last year, and part of the reason they've been a little worse this year compared to last, some of that is the top line underperforming. When you consider like their goals, um, their goals over an underperformance relative to expected goals, but a big chunk of it is that the depth is just a bit worse than last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and part of that has to do with like the loss of you know people like Ilya Mikheyev, but part of that has to do with the fact that like the Leafs were destroying people in Sandine's minutes last year, and they are not doing that to the same degree this season. Yes. And I think that that actually segues kind of nicely into something that we've talked about a little bit in the past, but it's a question that comes up in general in player evaluation, which is, do forwards just straight up matter more than defensemen? And if so, how much? Um, 
I think forwards do matter more than defensemen, for the record. I think that they are generally more of an active presence. Um, I think defense is more holistic. You know, you can have a defensive breakdown where four people are doing the right thing and one person isn't. That's actually what a lot of defensive breakdowns are. Um, whereas offense is sometimes driven to a greater extent by individual skill. Uh, and so I think that there's some question as to how you evaluate your team and your players um, in terms of importance. This matters in terms of how good you think the Leafs actually are, and they are sort of forward-heavy, and what they should do now to get better. The Leafs as currently constituted have not really hit it out of the park in the first six weeks of this season. Mm-hmm. Uh, you characterize them as mid. Um, I'm older than you, and so the word mid sounds strange and vaguely exotic to me, so I called them pedestrian, but really it adds up to the same thing. Mm-hmm. They look they look like a, uh, a modestly above-average team, which is fine if that's all your objective is. The Leafs are aiming higher, as we've said a hundred times. And in the past, under Sheldon Keefe, this team has been a very good XG team. Very, very good XG team. And our question has been, Okay, how will that hold up at the playoffs? Right now, they're not actually that great as an XG team. They're fine, but they're right around 10th in the NHL. Well, that'll get you in the playoffs, but that doesn't win you a Stanley Cup. Right, and remember, the Leafs are also the type of team where XG could possibly overrate their abilities uh, in some ways, simply because... A lot of the Leafs' chances... I, I, I do think the Leafs have done a good job controlling possession, right? And, and we originally, Corsi and expected goals started as a measure of possession. Over time, people sort of realized, well, possession actually doesn't matter in of itself. Like, XG and Corsi are the idea of productive possession, possession that actually like, leads to shots and chances and whatnot. If you just track possession itself, though, I think the Leafs would, would look okay. But it seems like there's lots of times where... They sort of just have the puck and not don't do a lot with it, and then the puck goes the other way, and the opposing team gets a, a chance worth the Leafs having much uh, less of a defensive structure than the opponent had when the Leafs had the puck. So all that to say, you know, mentally I sort of discount the Leafs' XG like a tiny amount just by the way, just due to the nature of how they play. Yeah, like the quintessential Toronto Maple Leafs possession is five guys circling around the offensive zone like a washing machine, and the opposing team clustered in the center um, with one guy spinning off to try and harass the puck carrier, basically. But them basically holding a structure, and the Leafs keep turning and changing the guy who chases them in the hope that a crack opens up. Sometimes this works. I don't want to say that this is necessarily a bad strategy, but... If the team that they're attacking is disciplined and doesn't open a lot of cracks, sooner or later they seem to end up settling for a shot that is not terrifically high percentage. Um, That is not a free shot from someone who is that close to the net. Uh, And in the worst scenarios, all that moving around where you're doing lateral passes that go across the blue line or go from the sideboards up to the blue line, 
um, those get cut off. And then you're facing an odd man rush the other way. That's the basic concern that the Leafs raise. And when the Leafs are like a 55-56% XG team, and they're in the top five comfortably, um, maybe very near it, you sort of think, okay, even discounting them a lot, though, they're still really good. But right now, we have a team that is performing kind of just okay in these numbers. And we say, is this a new normal? If this is a problem, where is it coming from? And if this is reflective, is this team a serious contender? And I think that the concern starts to arise that maybe it's not. Now, there's lots of time for this to get better, even if nothing else changes. Also, the puck is probably going to go in more. Austin Matthews is shooting a pretty low percentage. I don't have a reason to believe that that's going to continue based on his whole track record of being a really good shooter. So, you know, eventually at some point we would start asking questions about has he changed something? Is he suffering an injury? But at present, I'm good to assume that'll work out and things will get better. But still, like, I'm less confident in this team against the Carolinas of the world or the Vegas Golden Knights or the Colorado Avalanche or whoever. And by the way, the Avalanche have not started that great by fancy stats, but when you win the Stanley Cup, you get to just do that. <laughs> right, yeah, you, it earns you a bit of benefit of the doubt. Yeah. So yeah, yeah I, I mean, mean, that's something we're wrestling with. Well, going to your uh, the point you made at the start, like are, are defenders just inherently worth a bit less than the goaltenders? I mean, I sure hope so. Uh, based on how the Leafs have structured their team. And, you know, and, and the forwards, you mean? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so I mean, if the, the as we've talked about ad nauseum on this podcast, the idea that the Leafs have an actively bad defense group is is outdated. It's mm-hmm. like based in 2016 or 2017. Uh, but their defense group still clearly lacks behind their forwards, at least on the elite end. Yeah. Um, lags behind, I should say. So... In many ways, the Leafs have made a bet on, you know, on forwards being worth more than defensemen, and it's something that agrees with my priors. I mean, the the basic idea being that I think, I think goaltend, or sorry, sorry, I think forwards and defensemen have similar abilities to affect moving the puck, uh, in aggregate. But forwards, the best forwards, exert more of an influence on the puck going in offensively than the best defensemen do on the puck not going in defensively. Like, I think so much of that is dependent on the goaltender. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly defenders can make it easier. I think peak Ryan Suter was an example of a player who who always essentially made his goalies better when he was on the ice. Mm-hmm. But, uh, like, e- even irrespective of, of just t- uh, the opposing team taking fewer or worse chances. But I think, on average, like, the best forwards do this at a higher rate than the best defensemen. Now, that's, like, a very kind of macro sense. In, in, in a micro sense, like, there's obviously situations where a defenseman would help you a lot more. And I, I think, you know, if you have a stacked forward group and you add one more forward to it and you have a terrible defense group, adding, like, an average defenseman might help you more because you can't get all those forwards playing together at the same time. And, and similar to what we talked about with the with the fourth line last time we were here, like you have too many people all trying to do essentially the same thing or all whose skills all are effectively the same thing. Uh, 
it doesn't necessarily interlace together very well, mm-hmm. right? So, so I don't want to treat them as if it's as forwards and defenses if they're totally interchangeable and you can, you know, survive without any good forwards or any good defensemen just by adding more of the other. I do think there's some interaction there. Yeah, and you know what? In the context of the Leafs, there are defensemen that I would love to add to this team, and mm-hmm. I would say. Let's go get them if they're available at some sort of reasonable price. But I look at this team right now, and the concerns that I have are two, and they are forward-focused. The first one is that for all the cycling that the top two lines do so well, they don't necessarily break down opposing defenses to the extent that I would hope. They sort of besiege opposing defenses and hope that those defenses make a mistake, and sometimes they do. Or they hope that the general sort of strain and wear um, turns a middling shot into a slightly better than middling shot. I want someone who can break in a little bit more. And, failing that, I also want someone who's a bit more of a rush threat on the bottom six. Um, I'm concerned that we have a bottom six that doesn't have that many legitimate scoring threats, like Kelly Yarncroak is maybe the closest. Um, and I don't think he's been great this year in terms of play driving. I think, I think he's been sort of he's potted a couple decent goals. Yeah, and he, he's flashed some of that shooting talent that we said like, hey, he, he'll kind of surprise you with how how heavy his shot is. Mm-hmm. Um, but on like a shift to shift basis, I can't say I've been overly impressed by him. Yeah, like and you know it's just not good enough. We talked about uh, Kyle Dubas being good at finding bargain bin options finding guys to fill out the bottom six, and we said we have some confidence in him to do that. And I think that that was justified. I think the early returns on it are not as good as they have been in the past. And, you know, we've already seen Nicholas Abe-Kubel come and go. Um, But we're now looking at a bottom six that gets outplayed on a regular basis that doesn't score as much as we wish it did. And... I think if I'm looking at this team, I'm saying I have to get another forward. I, I I want to at least explore that. Maybe you don't have to do it right now, but I am absolutely keeping an eye on who's available. Um, sometimes people will say, hey, throw out an actual name. Uh, Andreas Athanasiu is the one that occurs to me. He plays for Chicago, who I anticipate are going to be well out of the playoff race in a couple months. Um, I'm not saying he's a defensive dynamo, but he is fast and he's dangerous on the rush in his own right. I would love to add that kind of element to the third line. And if you want to aim a little bit more upscale, um, you can look at the St. Louis Blues, who have had a surprisingly bad start to the season that involved the tailspin of a losing streak. If they spiral all the way out, do they start looking at trading Vladimir Tarasenko or Ryan O'Reilly? How much do those guys cost? Maybe more than I want to pay, but I, I think that that's something that maybe you consider. But either way, I think you're looking at a forward to me. That's what I would want. I would tend to agree. Um, I, I mean, the, the, the reality is it's going to be pretty hard for the Leafs to acquire... A defenseman who will who will move the needle, right? Because mm-hmm. th- that's the thing. Like, the least depth defensemen are not really the problem here. Yeah. Right. I mean, for all we we talked about, you know, oh, Sandy needs to be better. 
right? It's it's not like he has been, as we said, he's not sewering the team at the moment. He's just not played as well as we would like him to, mm-hmm. right? The, you're not going to get a drastic, drastic improvement on him there. And, you know, in a world where Jake Muzzin probably, I think we can, like, I'm kind of not counting Jake Muzzin as part of the Leafs going forward just based on the noise around his injury. Mm-hmm. But when TJ Brody comes back, it's like, okay, I'm I'm, I'm comfortable with the Leafs defenseman. Like, even Sandy not really playing great is still a fine third-pairing defenseman. Right, so what you really need is is someone who can play on the second pair, and then that's gonna cost a lot. You need like another Jake Muzzin trade. Yeah. Uh, that's tricky to do. Whereas, kind of the bar for the Leafs forwards on, on the low end is is lower. I would say, mm-hmm. right? Like there there's someone who there are middling forwards who would have I think more of an impact there. And again, this might just be our bias of. We think forwards are generally going to be more like a middling forward is generally going to be more impactful than a middling defenseman. At least, at least that that's that's how I think about it. Um, now, one counter to that is like GM seem to really really value defensemen, perhaps more than we would, and we could say, oh, that's them being inefficient. But we should also consider maybe they know something we don't. Yeah. Um, you know, we always have to have a certain respect for the people who actually do the job, even if we make fun of it a lot of the time. Um. But yeah, like I look at the Leafs and I say, they have a lot of guys who are a plausible three, four, five defenseman. A lot of those guys. And so, yeah, to, to really move the needle there, you need someone who's better than that, I think. Someone who's really going to push everything down. I'm not saying you can't do that. And if the Leafs start really uh, shaking the leaves, no pun intended, and one of those guys is available, then look at it. By all means. But I don't think that's the priority anymore. And I can't help noticing when the Leafs have died in the playoffs, the issue has seemed to come down to inadequate scoring at the key moment, Um, most prominently against Columbus, but in general. Uh, And I am tired of blaming it on shooting percentage, even if shooting percentage is a big part of it. Um, So, yeah, Um, there was a... uh, a Justin Bourne article talking about, like, have you changed your opinion on this this team's ceiling? You know, are they actually better than they've been in previous years? And his conclusion was probably not. They're better defensively than they've been in previous years um, as sort of an overall team thing. But, yeah, you can say, I think some adjustments probably need to be made. And if this team looks like this going into the playoffs... It's going to be hard to favor them against anyone they're likely to face. Mm-hmm. Like I, I said, you know, this team could be the best team in the Atlantic. Well, when they're playing like this, no, they're not, unfortunately. Now, Boston is fucking risen from the dead, of course, but even compared to uh, Tampa Bay or Florida. So, yeah, lots of time for this to just get better on its own, even. You know, we're still in these somewhat early days, but I won't pretend it doesn't concern me. I I am not as ready to say that I've revised my opinion of the leaf ceiling downwards. Um just in just primarily because I think I don't know, I guess my prior on the top line getting back to something approximating last season is is quite strong. Yeah. And Tavares and Neander have looked generally pretty good, like around as good as last season, uh, possibly better mm-hmm. to me this season. 
So then that leaves the issue really being the depth. And, and Katya had an article on, on, on the site that basically said it's like, it, you know, all this fetching about whether Matthews plays with Nylander or Marner or that sort of stuff, like it, it's also somewhat besides the point because any combination of those four is probably fine. And the issue is just that like the depth guys are not giving the lift that they were last year. Yes, I agree. And actually that's something that I want to, um, to just say, cause it's a trend that I've noticed in the discourse Whatever the problem with this team is, it is not that Mitch Marner is not being punished. There are a lot of people who want Mitch Marner to experience some negative consequence for A, having claimed $11 million a year from the team, and B, not having one in the playoffs. And I get focusing on him for that, but there's this desire to demote him or deprive him of ice time or do all this stuff focused on him that I do not think really matters that much. Like, he, he's a really good player. He will be a really good player with John Tavares. Play him with Tavares, I don't care. Um, as Kat just said, like, look, it, it'll work itself out. But I think the focus on him personally is disproportionate. Um, because he's one of the things that you can trust will work itself out, and your problems are based elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and given that if you accept that the problems are primarily the depth, like that is more fixable in the trade market mm-hmm. than than almost anything else, right? So I do think there's a world where it's 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 it's, pre- it's a pretty easy to see world where the top line just starts scoring again, basically. Like that. They, they've been a little bit worse in terms of controlling shots and chances than last year. Mm-hmm. Um, not hugely, hugely worse, but like a little bit worse. And then also, as we've covered, they they the puck just has not gone in enough. Uh, so if that changes, which I, again, I, I, I see it as like at least somewhat likely to, mm-hmm. uh, I don't think, you know, Monstars stole their talent or their shooting <laughs> ability. And the Leafs make a trade to shore up their depth. Like, I think that gets you a lot of the way there potentially to basically the Leafs offense and, and abilities from last year. Yeah. I, I, I do think we miss Mikheyev. Right? Yes. I think that, yeah. that's pretty obvious. Yeah, um, and you know, you can say, look, I, I didn't want to give him that contract and still, yeah. he's, you know, he's a loss. That's exactly what I was going to say. Like, I, I still don't want that contract. Yeah. But he's clearly, like, a better player than we have in our, in our bottom six. Yeah, and, you know, Mikheyev has been fine in Vancouver for what it's worth. Vancouver itself <laughs> has not been fine at all. But, uh, yeah, he's not the problem. Yep. Um, um, I guess one other thing we wanted to do is just give a quick sort of overview on where the Atlantic stands right now. Mm-hmm. Um, because that is going to matter. Well, at some point in the season, we'll do like a four and a half hour podcast where we go into <laughs> each individual team in the Atlantic. We are not doing that right now. Yeah. Um, but just to, to, to give you kind of an idea of like, oh, that's how that team is doing. Um, as mentioned, Boston's kicking ass. Um, we chatted about them a lot last time on the pod because we the Leafs had just uh, beat them. The Leafs are one of only two teams to do that. It's just, uh, yeah, they have won 16 out of 18 games. That is goddamn ridiculous. Yeah, no, that's 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 pretty absurd. Um, they are undefeated at home. They have a plus 38 goal differential. The next highest in the league is uh, I think the the Devil was at plus 26. So, yeah, the the Bruins are unfortunately very very good. Patrice Bergeron is Patrice Bergeron. Um, they've sped up 
uh, Pasternak to, to play on the second line with Krejci and Hall. He's responded by kicking absolute ass. And then, of course, when the going gets tough, they can just put them back together and guarantee 70% of the expected goals. Yeah, like, so, I, you know, I hate to say it, but if you are picking who is the Stanley Cup favorite right now, there's a real good case that it has to be the Boston Bruins. I think really the only thing against him is they have a tough path. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but by performance so far, they've played about as well as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Um I, I mean, I don't even know what to say. It makes me angry. Uh, the yeah, Tampa Bay Lightning have, uh, hmm. you know, they do the Tampa Bay Lightning thing where they you look at them and you're like, this isn't actually quite as good as I know that this team can be, but it doesn't matter. They're heating up as usual. Kucherov is shooting the lights out. Yeah, they were scuffling for a bit, and I think they, they've rattled off four in a row. Yeah, because they can just do that. This team is going to make the playoffs in all likelihood. Bargain of Asilowski injury. Um, and then they will be terrifying for whoever has to face them. Guess who it might be? Um, yeah, so I, I don't anticipate a huge change there. You can say, look, Tampa Bay, I don't think is immortal. I will say that. They are beatable. Um, they're just really good and really experienced and have a lot of good players. Scare me. Yeah, they are really beatable, but I just like the team that beats them is not is most likely not going to come out with being like, oh, that was trivial. It's yeah, like, oh, <laughs> it's gonna be like, oh, that was so awful. Yeah, they will make you pay for it. Yeah, so they're serious. Um, the next team in the standings is Detroit. Well, sorry, just to just to yep. add, um, so the, the Lightning are second by points percentage. They're like slightly ahead of the Leafs. The Leafs are third by points percentage in the Atlantic, and then behind them is Detroit. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's kind of neck and neck right there. Detroit is right in it by points. And, you know, as we've said more than once, they don't make you give the points back, whether you deserve them or not in some sort of global sense. I don't think Detroit is this good. I, I mean, don't. they have a they have a negative goal differential, right? Like they're not that good by at five on five by by any of the stats. They're actually, I mean, I, like, pretty bad. Yeah. Like, they're, they're under 45% XG. I am willing to buy that you can be, like, a 49% XG team, and that undersells you, and you're actually pretty good. Like, I'm thinking of, like, Islanders Classic under Trots or something mm-hmm. like that. I don't buy that you can really be under 45% and be a serious team. So if that doesn't get better, I am going to predict that the Detroit Red Wings spiral down the, the standings. Um, before too long like they're the company they're keeping statistically is they're behind the montreal canadians and just ahead of the flyers and the blue jackets like well we'll see um to be clear detroit doesn't even need to make the playoffs this year no so this is not an indictment of their overall team building they could be scary in a year or two but they aren't yet to me yeah they're they're i don't they're, I, Often what we say in these situations, oh, this team's on like a, a, a absolute heater and, and they'll come down. I don't even, Detroit's not even on a heater. They're like, their goal score percentage is not that much better than their expected goal score percentage. They're just winning close games and losing blowouts. Yeah, and that's usually a bad sign. Um, good teams win games by margins, I guess I would say. Um, so yeah, you know, now that said, maybe they'll stick around. By the way, just as an aside, um... 
because Twitter was like pretend going to die this past week, a lot of people were contemplating all the experiences that they've had on that wonderful website. I think the maddest that anyone has ever been at me was that time that I said Steve Eiserman might have been getting a little bit too much credit for what he done with the Red Wings. And like a million Red Wings fans came after me. So I'm afraid to criticize them, but I'm going to do it anyway. I don't think they're legit this year. Um, the Florida Panthers, though, I think are sort of legit. They're a good team. Again. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, 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 we talk about the Leafs and we've mentioned how the Leafs offense has been kind of middling this year compared to compared to last. I think that is very true of the um, of the Panthers. Mm. The Panthers last year were like on an island in terms of offense. Now their offense is still good. It's like second in the league. Yeah. Right. <laughs> They're coming um, down from a great height. Yes. But last year they like absolutely like, you know, wrecked shit in, in, in that department. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, hasn't been as smooth sailing this year, uh, in that sense, but it's still, it's still a very, very good offense. It's just, as you said, slightly worse than, than it was last year. And they, they haven't, uh, finished very well this season. Now, part of that is like they, they lost, uh, an elite passer in Jonathan Huberto. Yes, they did. Now they were, they replaced him with Matthew Kachuk, who has been good for them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and is a better bet long term, I think. But yeah, the, you know that has consequences. Also, Sergei Bobrovsky is again scuffling. Um, Spencer Knight probably should get the starting job going forward. Bobrovsky has had the bulk of the starts up to now. At the current way things are going, I think Knight will get the job pretty soon if he doesn't already have it. Um, but yeah, that that's always their um, their overhanging issue which is that Bobrovsky still makes $10 million against the cap, and nobody wants him at that price. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. Florida is a legit team, even if you probably have some questions about whether they're a real playoff team, because they flared out much worse than Toronto did, in my opinion. Even granted, they won a series against the Capitals. Yeah, the, I, I mean, the Capitals were like not that great, and I think the... the... The prevailing opinion after that series was like, wow, Florida looks terrible. Not like, not Florida gutted it out against a good team. Yeah, and then they went in against the Lightning and got smoked. And, yes. you know, like I I will allow myself a little bit of a homework take on this one. If the Leafs had played the Capitals last year, I think they would have won. And I think the Leafs were a better playoff team last year than the Florida Panthers. Does that mean anything? I don't know. Nope, not really. No. Unfortunately. Uh, we'll, there are we'll, no we'll awards raise- for winning the hypothetical in Fulham's head. We'll, we'll raise a banner. Fuleman thought they were better than the Panthers. <laughs> There's so it'll much up, evidence. <laughs> it'll go up next to the Bon Jovi banner. Oh, yeah. They've, ta- they've taken that down, haven't they? Have they? Well, that's good. I mean, you know, I fucking hate Bon Jovi. Oh, really? And, yeah. Okay. Okay, so I dated a girl in uh, mm-hmm. university and very nice, you know, very nice person. Mm-hmm. However, she did enjoy Bon Jovi and um, he makes the most anodyne soulless it's like it's rock music for people who were afraid that rock music might make them feel too much um <laughs> i'm still this is this is like 15 years ago and i'm still <laughs> i haven't gotten past it yeah uh, I, can, I can tell you you've handled this in a healthy way yeah <laughs> just on, on florida's offense i think yeah. the other thing is um like league offense i believe has crept up this year i don't know if it'll i don't i forget the uh, track record of whether 
it, it people, often spikes it, in October. Yeah, yeah. and then and then it falls down the rest of the year. So like Florida's offense in raw terms is like about as not it's slightly worse than it was last year, but like relative to the league, it's like it's come back to to the pack in in a way mm-hmm. uh, compared to compared to last season. So yeah, that's 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 the main thing I wanted to uh, to point out there. Um, but yeah, they'll they'll still be good. I, I mean, I saw a lot of uh, of people kind of saying that like oh Paul Maurice might have ruined this team. Yeah. Without having watched Florida, I mean, I don't know. I, it seems like from just looking at the stats, like that they probably are just have gotten a little bit unlucky and have have made their team a little bit worse in terms of like expected shooting percentage and like expected, uh, sorry, and shooting percentage over expected is what I meant to say. Because mm. um, you know when you lose an elite passer like Huberto, that that does make an impact. But I would I wouldn't expect them to be you know, as as poor as they have been in terms of converting chances into goals. So maybe there's something there where, like, the chances they're generating are not actually great chances. But, you know, until we do a deeper dive, I, I still kind of... I'm happy to see them struggle because it, it means, you know, there's a chance that they miss the playoffs now, which would be great for the least perspective. Yeah. But um, I, I think realistically they have a very good shot at making it because, as we covered, Detroit ahead of them is, is not that great a team and no one else behind them like the team that might have been able to catch up to them if they were at the same level is is Ottawa, which we'll get to. Mm-hmm. Um, but Ottawa's so far behind that I think they're essentially out of it. Yeah. Um, the next one down is the Montreal Canadiens. We said going into this season that the Canadiens would be like respectable bad, and I actually think that that particular statement has held up. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're not embarrassing to the sport. They're having like a fun rebuilding season. Their fans are having a good time. You know, they're in it. They play hard every night. I think, like, all of that is actually fine. Like, their rebuild is right on track for everything they want to do. And uh, Suzuki and Caulfield uh, are are pretty hot right now. Yeah, they, they their fans are actually probably having a pretty fun season because it's just yeah. all you do is look at when Suzuki and Caulfield score slash do fun stuff, which is going to happen relatively often because they're good players. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you just look at for the flashes in Slavkovsky. And yeah. then, like, it, it's a pretty low-stress season, to be honest. Yeah, and you know what? Well, good for them. I don't... Okay. When I say good for them, I mean that in the abstract it would be good if they weren't Montreal Canadiens fans who are bad people who deserve to be unhappy. But in general, you know, whatever. Um, that's fine. Montreal is actually still kind of clinging around the edges of the playoff race. I doubt that's going to continue. Like, they need a PDO bender to really sustain this, I don't think. And I think otherwise this is going to tell and they're going to finish respectably bad. Mm-hmm. Um, Buffalo, as they are wont to do, started the season looking promising and hit the skids in a brutal fashion. The Leafs dealt them their eighth consecutive loss last night. Mm-hmm. Um, and they went from kind of surprisingly hanging around the top of the Atlantic to very nearly playing themselves out of playoff contention by American Thanksgiving. Uh, it's an unforgiving league. I think if you can look past that, there are some good signs for the future for the Buffalo Sabres. Tage Thompson looks like a real boy, and he was dangerous last night too. Mm-hmm. Um, we mentioned Rasmus Dallin is good for them. I think Owen Power is going to be good for them. There are pieces there, man, that I think... Like, I can see how this comes together in a couple of years 
It's just, unfortunately for them, it's like they're not good enough to survive how many losses they just rang together. And I think that that's going to be too much for them. Mm -hmm. I would pretty much agree with that. Um, And none of that is any consolation for Sabres fans who have, you know, suffered for a very, very long time. Yeah, you know... In their their quest to watch not horrific hockey. Yeah, you know, like, I I feel bad for them because it's like, I think this team is going to finish with 75 to 80 points. And I think Mm -hmm. that that could have happened anyway. But if it had happened in a slightly more balanced fashion that wasn't we lose eight in a row, at least they could have hung (laughs) around until January, February. And that would have been a little bit less brutal. Anyway. Um... Here's a tragedy. The Ottawa Senators are somehow behind the Sabres right now. Mm. Um, now, they lost Josh Norris to injury, and Norris is their first-line center, basically. Um, and that's a big but their blow. For, their, their forward group is so so deep. <laughs> I, I was told it was better than Toronto's. Oh, man. You know what the tragedy of it is that they're not as bad as this they oh, honestly are close they're, they're they're a fine team they're an above average team in my opinion yeah like i actually think like ottawa was like right on the edge of you know flirting with a playoff spot if things had broken differently for them and you know like i it's still only 17 18 games in it's not impossible but they've dug a really big hole that is going to be really hard for a team that is about average to get out of, I, I I'm gonna say it. it's 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 impo- I, I I I would have to give like cr- I'd have to get crazy odds about them to make the playoffs. They're they're nine points behind Detroit. Yeah, Let, let's say seven points. They have a game in hand. Yeah, that's a huge gap. Even if even if I think they're like significantly better than Detroit. Yeah, which I do believe it or not. And you know the tragedy of it for them is that several things have actually kind of worked out. Jake Sanderson has been good for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a big thing for them, that their defense wasn't good enough. And so he came in, and he had a very positive impact. They waved Nikita Zaitsev, which I guess means that they've sort of realized he's bad. Um, took them long enough, but whatever. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so I think that the Sens actually have, like, a pretty decent team here it's a little thinner down the middle and it probably couldn't sustain the loss of josh norris but yeah for for a while they were kind of just the inverse of detroit in that they were winning big and losing close yeah so so like basically goal sequencing was their problem and and there's a lot of evidence across basically every sport that goal sequencing slash point sequencing is Mm -hmm. largely the a, fu- a function of variance and not a function of intrinsic team skill. Like mm-hmm. there are some exceptions in basketball. I know some like Chris Paul led teams tend to have really, really good uh, clutch performance, but you know, generally speaking, if your team is really good in the clutch, that's like, that's fine. It's better than the alternative, but you really don't want to be playing that many like clutch minutes. You want to just be blowing teams out. Yeah, exactly. Because you have more control, the more of a margin you can put up on teams. Um, yeah. And so, a lot of people are dunking on Sens fans for having gotten way out over their skis with this team, with some reason. Some of the chatter got insane. Mm-hmm. Um, 
At the same time, that obscures the fact that this team is probably actually a lot better than last year. And as long as they can work out some kind of decent Alex DeBrincat extension, I don't even think that this is that bad. The nightmare scenario for Leafs fans is actually that this actually decent team gets a top three pick. Yes. So sleep with your eyes open, guys. Yeah, I think I think Ottawa will actually crawl back upward. Maybe mm-hmm. there might even be a bit of a dead cat bounce once they fire DJ Smith, which I well, don't just think... just got that... the vote of confidence, and surely no GM would ever give that to a coach <laughs> they plan on firing anytime soon. Yeah, no, when has that ever happened? And, you know, I'm not saying they're going to. I'm just saying that if they lose another, let's say, seven games out of the next ten or something like that, but, uh, yeah, anyway, so I, I think basically Ottawa, as you say, has almost played themselves out despite being better than it looks like. By team quality, I think Ottawa is actually the best, the fifth best team in the Atlantic. I agree. So, yeah, anyway, that's a little survey of what we're facing right now. And it amounts to, I think the same four teams are going to make it from the Atlantic as made it before. Yeah, just a different order. I think Boston's the odds-on favorite to finish first. Um, the Leafs have a pretty reasonable track to the 2-3. Hopefully it's the 2, yeah. but we'll see. Yeah, exactly. The thing about it, Boston has an 8-point lead on second place mm-hmm. with a game in hand. That's insane to have this fast, but whatever. Yeah, um, it's, no, it's, it's honestly incredibly, it's incredibly impressive what, what Boston has done. Like, if, if they played exactly 500 hockey the rest of the way, they would still be a 100-point team. Or thereabouts. They'd be, I think they'd be at 98 points. That's fucking crazy, man. That's actually insane. And, and remember, 500 in the NHL was, like, significantly below average because of the existence of three-point games. Yeah, like, the average team is well above that. So, damn. All right. Well, anyway, fuck Boston. I hate them. And... When will we be free of this curse? I guess is what I'm saying. I know we say this like literally every week. I, I don't understand how Patrice Bergeron is still this good. It's actually staggering to me. Like, this is a guy who was seriously contemplating retirement. And he's come right back out there at 37 years old. And he's like, he might win the Selkie again. Again! I don't know, man. It's bonkers. I hate it. Yeah. All right. So uh, we have sort of an interesting thing for bad take of the week this week. Um, so <laughs> I we, let's preface this right now. This has very, very little to do with hockey. Incredibly tangential. If you're not interested in our non-hockey ideas or thoughts, feel free to turn it off now. We will not. Uh, we won't know. So we, we can't blame yeah. you for it. Right? Like, so yeah, do whatever you want. Um, some of you may remember, I, th- I think this was in the off season that like Chris Johnson had, I think one of my favorite bad takes of all time, where he basically tweeted that like crypto was the, literally the best invention in the history of humankind. I believe it was the most significant development in human history. Okay. I so, I mean, mm-hmm. we-, we talked about this ad nauseum at the time. It was uh, so funny. <laughs> well, it's like an obviously absurd take, right? Because like, I don't know, 
What about the thing that lets you spew your trash take into the world for us to see? That seems like a pretty big development, you know, the internet. <laughs> you know what? Right. I, what about I like to, literal fire? I went to Cuba like the week after that yeah. and I actually had our podcast mm -hmm. um, just like queued up and like I had nothing else to do. So I was on a bus going through the Cuban countryside and I was listening to us just talk about things that were more important than Chris Johnson's assessment of Bitcoin and we were like glasses and yeah. socks and anyway it is uh it has a place in my heart forever for that right so anyways the reason we bring this up is because over the last two weeks um one of the biggest crypto exchanges in the world ftx has like kind of turned out to be a ponzi scheme and i don't what? mean a ponzi scheme in the like oh it's a scam thing i mean a ponzi scheme in the literal definition of ponzi scheme of like using new customers debts to pay off old customers or like investors or whatever it like it's it's really 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 awful what what F, what has happened with ftx um the long and short of it is so we're, neither of us are financial experts uh but i have actually read up a fair bit you're, on this you're closer than you think <laughs> no I, not not in this realm of finance but basically i mean ftx is an exchange so you put money on ftx and you can like buy and sell crypto and whatever right uh so often these exchanges they really act more like brokers than than traditional exchanges in in finance which are like a, an exchange on a stock market really just like matches up buyers and sellers and like maybe does like custodial stuff mm -hmm. um but you know ftx is really acting as a as a broker and also it sort of like as a bank as well so for those who don't know when you deposit money at a bank the bank will turn around and lend it to other people Mm -hmm. Right. And this is generally like a quite good thing for the economy because it makes uh, investments like more possible, it makes credit more possible mm -hmm. and allows people to get debt funding for, in theory, productive ideas like building small businesses, capital improvements, yada, yada, yada. Right. So, so something similar was sort of happening with with FTX. You can make, you know, you, you deposit some some money to to buy Bitcoin. They take your money or they take your Bitcoin and they can like lend it out, right? And and do all sorts of financial engineering stuff with it. Now, as it's turned out, no, so, okay, sorry, let me back up. This is a good thing generally, but it is also in banking very tightly regulated because obviously if I am taking someone else's money, like as a, if I'm a bank and Fulman gives me money, I owe him that money, mm -hmm. right? That's a liability. So if I take it and lend it out, I have to lend it out carefully. I don't want to buy Beanie Babies with it because then I will have lost Fulman's money and then Fulman comes back and says, yo, where's my money? And I'm like, hey, can I interest you in this Beanie Baby? <laughs> and that's not good for anyone. Well, uh, actually, so this is... Um, now, in Canada and the US, and I'm sure in most other countries, you actually have what's called deposit insurance at basically every bank. That is like worth depositing money into which is that like your money is is guaranteed up to a certain amount right like, even if the bank loses it like they, they have to have insurance for it or, or something like you, your 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 deposits are, are protected as a side note um the uh there's like an influential branch of economics on bank runs uh which actually won the nobel prize this year and this literature essentially argued that like deposit insurance is like a really good way to help prevent bank runs because if i know my deposits are insured uh, I don't need to like rush to a bank to like withdraw money when I think the bank it might be going insolvent. 
Yeah. Right, or, or, like or, sorry, or, or going illiquid, to be, to be clear. Illiquid is a very different thing than insolvent in this, in this context. Yeah, like, I mean, a recurring thing with financial crisis is, is everyone gets scared that, mm-hmm. oh my god, I gotta get all my money out before they burn it all away. And other people yes. do it. And so then there's a bank run where everyone tries to pull it out. And of course, the bank doesn't have 100% of its deposits on hand. And so the bank collapses. Yes. And that's been a recurring theme in financial crisis since like 1600. Yes. And in theory, this is something that like deposit insurance can can help yeah. uh, rectify. And I think I think in North America, it was enacted in, after the Depression. And it has like significantly reduced the significance and the occurrence of bank runs. Now, bank runs are usually, sorry, this is getting long-winded, but bank <laughs> runs are usually the result of liquidity issues, right? Like yeah. a bank is usually, so again, I'm the bank here. Fuleman gives me short-term deposits. I lend it out, but I lend it out long-term, Yeah. right? I lend it out to people who are building businesses and whatnot. Um, so these might be good and like who are making more and for mortgages and things like that. Uh, so these might be good bets, like the people who I lend them to might be able to pay them off, but I'm not going to get all the money back for a long time. So if Fuleman asks for all his money now, and you multiply Fuleman by like a bajillion, mm-hmm. then there's an issue. So like, I'm good for the assets, but I just don't have the cash on hand right now. Mm-hmm. And this is often where like central banks come in and they will essentially ease this liquidity issue. Yeah. Now, FTX, which is essentially acting as this bank, did a couple very sketchy things in this for one they were making there, there there's not nearly the degree of like capital controls on on these on how they're they're trading you know consumer deposits and effectively what they appear to have done is taken consumer deposits and either invested them or used them to to cover debt for an associated hedge fund also run by the same people who run ftx so they took consumer deposits and let's say just use them for investment uh, at this crypto trading fund called Alameda Research. And then they lost that money. That's not great. No, that's really bad. Um, so the order of operations is unclear, but also sort of unimportant. Like it, it doesn't matter so much whether they were like, whether this crypto trading fund, Alameda Research, had a bunch of investments and like needed cash to, to cover some debt and then... You know, those investments lost money and the debt and, and the liabilities of, of the exchange were just used to cover the debt or whether they took the money and said, oh, we're going to make investments in this and lost the money. Either way, the net effect is um, this company has a bunch of assets, or sorry, a bunch of, a bunch of liabilities in the form of consumer deposits, mm-hmm. and it does not actually really have assets that could be sold to cover those deposits. Right. So they've lost a lot of money and then their assets apparently are just like these crypto products, which are really, really illiquid and also not real. Yeah. (laughs) And I don't even mean in the I don't even mean in the sense of like, oh, no crypto product is real. I mean, like these are actually like tokens that this company apparently just made out of thin air, more or less. Yeah. When I was reading this, because like I, I love mess, I suppose I should say. Like, I'm fascinated by weird financial collapses and scandals, even though I have, like, a rudimentary understanding of finance. But at some point, you end up in these situations where someone has something that they have been pretending was worth a lot of money. And that is not worth nearly the amount of money that they've relied on it to be. 
And they so they wind up in a situation like this where they have a whole lot of junk. And, but in this case, it was stag- what staggered me was like, they kind of just made this up out of whole cloth. Yes. So there's like a handful of issues here. One is, uh, if you were not aware, if you have consumer deposits, you can't just like give them to another company. Right, that 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 that's that's one issue. Like like you you can't just send that money to to some other crypto trading fund, yeah. uh, which is also controlled by you. Like that that's no bueno. You're not allowed to do that. Yeah. Right. The second is you know if you do that for the purposes of making those investments, you better make sure those investments like you know make some money. Right. Yeah. Um, which they haven't. Like it, th- this balance sheet of. FTX, which is really like the balance sheet of FTX and Alameda combined, it it consists of mostly magic beans in a way that's like kind of not that easy to piece together how that happened, mm-hmm. right? Um, there there's lots of theories on how how this happened, but like the long and short of it is like they traded with consumer money effectively and lost. The other thing is, you know, FTX made this loan to Alameda, like a sister company of of these consumer debts. So, I mean, I guess in principle, a bank could actually do that, but that loan should be collateralized, yeah. right? And like, you need to get something in returns that, so you, you know, mitigate the credit risk of giving these, say, $8 billion of consumer deposits or loans and consumer deposits to this other company. The thing is the loan was collateralized, apparently primarily by a token called FTT, which is FTX's own token. Mm-hmm. So... Essentially, the issue here is like there's a bunch of wrong way risk in the sense that like FTT is more or less stock in FTX mm-hmm. and Alameda is more or less controlled by FTX and has an impact on FTX. So if Alameda can't pay, pay down these debts, right, of these consumer deposits, mm-hmm. that also means that FTX is like SOL. And that means FTT is worthless. So in the only situation where you really need this collateral, it's not going to be there for you. Yeah, this actually, this segment was partially inspired by me really high on cold medication. Asking Arvind to explain to me what a wrong way risk was. And what it comes down to is, it's, it's set up so that when you're going to need to call in that loan that you made, the thing that you got to secure the loan is going to be plummeting in value at exactly the same time. And so your exposure gets worse and worse as the likelihood that you need to cover yourself gets higher and higher because you made this loan on the basis of this thing that gets worse as the loan gets less likely to be be, be paid back. Mm-hmm. Um. Anyway, I am fascinated by how badly this is fucked up because you've you've done a a really thorough job laying out like this tangled web of loans and stuff like that but also there are some rudimentary elements of being a business that these people did not do they don't know who works for them they don't know what assets they hold yes uh the the balance sheet that has been like publicized of ftx is like i wouldn't even call it a balance sheet it's it's like an absolute disaster. And, and this entire thing reeks of a bunch of people who are smart at, in some ways, 
mm-hmm. getting way out over their skis and thinking that they could do everything without needing like the quote unquote boring parts of a business such as a compliance department or accountants. Okay, I don't want to um, age stereotype too much, but this is the sort of thing that I would have produced if you put me at age 21 in charge of a massive amount of money and a business and just said, Willeman, figure it out. Now, I have an advantage on some of these people in that I'm not in an extremely tangled romantic relationship with my entire board of directors. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm also not, like, weirdly hierarchically racist, according to one of the posts of those persons. That's just a little bit of flavor. But anyway, it is actually staggering to me the amount of money that these people got without even the slightest pretense to knowing what they were doing. And this wasn't just, uh, uh, you know, Joe Sixpack putting $100 of uh, Bitcoin into an FTX account. Like, there was a lot of institutional money behind FTX. Ontario Teachers Pension Plan had money in it. Yep. And, and among many, many, many others. Yeah, yeah. Right? So, yeah, like, it's, yeah, this uh, FTX fooled a lot of people, and in particular, Sam Bankman-Fried, who, who ran FTX, and is probably going to jail, I hope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> fooled a lot of people, right? So, yeah. So the reason we bring this up is basically like, this stuff seems to happen in crypto a lot. Yeah, okay. But this is the thing. Everyone goes to crypto and says, it's this free market paradise, free of regulation. And I'm like, do you know what regulation actually does? Mm-hmm. It makes people play by very fundamental rules of business that protect investors a little bit. I'm not saying it works perfectly. I'm not saying that there aren't stupid regulations. But all of a sudden, you have a whole lot of people who are saying, hey, where the fuck did all of my billions of dollars go? And the answer is, well, they just kind of threw it in the trash because these people did not know what they were doing. Um, the, the hilarious thing that has come out of this is... Um, so I mentioned before, in the context of banks, you know, so this was, this was actually like a solvency thing, right? Yeah. But in the context of banks, often this becomes a liquidity issue. And they get bailed out when a bank run happens by a central bank. Mm-hmm. And there's some idea within crypto, there's been some talk about this, of like, oh, we should have like a crypto central bank, which apparently is just going to be Binance, which is like the biggest of uh, the biggest exchange out there. Um. But the hilarious thing is, this is just crypto recreating traditional finance. It, it Crypto started as this idea of like, oh, we don't need all this other stuff. And then they slowly learned the lessons of like, oh, turns out someone faced this issue before. And this is what they did. What gets me is, <coughs> okay, like, I'm obviously not giving too much away here. I think crypto is kind of meaningless. I don't think it has any inherent value. So its use is basically to give you another way to gamble with your money. And if you want to do that, that's fine. But generally speaking, I don't think that I want institutional investors putting money on a roulette wheel, which is what this is. Also, I know they're all talking about Binance. And this is just an aside, but someone posted like Binance is offering supposed returns of like 50% per annum or something like that. And I'm like, that seems like something that'll sustain itself. Uh, I, I saw... I saw... I haven't dug into this too closely, but I saw that 
Um, Binance, a huge chunk of their balance sheet is also tied up in tokens that they apparently created, which is part of the issue with FTX, right? Like FTX, um, yeah, F FTX has, you know, one part of the issue with FTX is that their balance sheet is has all these book values which could not possibly be realized. Yeah. In part because they have all these tokens which are just like kind of meaningless. Yeah. Right? Uh, and, and could not actually really be sold and are very highly correlated with their success as a business. Yeah. Like th that was like a core issue there is like, you know, their supposed value was that they had, oh, we have $9 billion of this token that we made up. And of course, the bankruptcy trustee and anyone else who looked at it says, if you attempted to sell this, you would in no way realize anything close to $9 billion in a million years. And that's like the core problem here is that they have this um, pretend nonsense money, I guess is the nicest way to say <laughs> it, um, that doesn't have a value remotely commensurate with what they're claiming it has. Um, and that's the moral of the story about Bitcoin. Ah, sorry. I got a little editorial there. But yeah, no, it, it, this is, it's <laughs> just like, it, it really can't be overstated how insane a take this was by Johnson. Um, <laughs> and how this keeps happening in this world in a way that like, I don't know, I, I guess there. I, I can see a world where there eventually is like legit uses for the technology and the ideas behind behind crypto. The like crypto evangelist types who think like it's going to take over the world. I don't see that to the same degree because shit like this keeps happening. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, people don't want to think about their money that much. Yeah. People want to have something stable that they can trust and then not really have to worry about the possibility that, you know, the place where they have their money has essentially incinerated it. Yeah, very much so. And if you will allow me one little last editorial at this, at the end of this segment, that is definitely not hockey, but, um, you know, I, I actually am licensed as a lawyer, even though I'm not currently practicing. I wasn't good at several of the things that, you know, our day-to-day -day attorney practice, like I didn't like it, but I was good at written argument. And the core of written argument as law is even when stuff is really complicated, if you know what's going on, you should at least be able to boil it down to a kind of a bird's eye view that an ordinary intelligent person would understand. You should at least be able to give me a bullet summary where I get a little bit of an idea. Um, and if you can't do that, I start wondering really seriously what's going on here. Bitcoin, I don't think, or a cryptocurrency in general, I don't think they've ever done that beyond we're free of regulation, which is fine if you really think regulation is the great evil of the world, and you could make a lot of money really quickly. And that sounds to me a lot like it has the potential to be a scam. I'm not saying everyone involved in it is trying to scam everyone else all the time. I'm just saying it awfully seems like that's the main purpose of it. And other uses of it that people have suggested don't seem to come to fruition nearly as often as, oh, this was another scam. I'm reminded of like 
the Simpsons had this gag where they had like a Fox News helicopter, and it's like the slogan was like "Not racist, but number one with racists." <laughs> and it's like I feel that way about crypto. It's like not necessarily a scam, but number one with scammers. Yeah, that's a good summary of it. You know, it's it's not like I understand that there are some very principled people who feel like it has some sort of purity for it. I think as a practical matter, like this is uh, this is funny money to me. Pretty much. All right. So that concludes the the crypto segment of, <laughs> the of this podcast. Portion of the, yeah. I'm too excited. <laughs> uh, you can tell how excited we are about the Leafs right now. <laughs> we, do, we just spent like a, a third of the podcast talking about talking about something completely unrelated, but it was fun. Uh, I mean, if you guys like hearing us talk about random stuff, we can mix it in every once in a while. Yeah. Uh, so so definitely let us know. Um, but that's basically everything we wanted to cover. You can catch all of mine and Fuleman stuff at pensionpanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RV and AT Um We'll see you next week. <laughs>